0: Hi, listeners. Here's something really special and timely. It's the first episode of the ParCast limited series, Hollywood Scandals. If you enjoy it, tune in every Monday for another infamous event in showbiz history. Just follow Hollywood Scandals free and only on Spotify. Hi, everyone. Carter here. On April 25th, we're in for Hollywood's biggest night of the year, the 93rd Annual Academy Awards. Steeped in Tinseltown tradition, the Oscars are a night of classic glamour. Stars walk the red carpet in their finest gowns and suits. But beneath all that sparkle, Hollywood has always had a seedy underbelly. In honor of the Oscars, ParCast has put together a special collection of 10 episodes about the biggest scandals in Hollywood history. We'll cover the Hollywood madam who ran a celebrity sex ring, the blacklisting of the Hollywood 10, and the mysterious death of Natalie Wood. But before we dive into those infamous stories, we're going back to the original scandal, how Hollywood got its start, In this episode of The Dark Side Of, we'll explore how Hollywood was founded as a Christian utopia, and how the movie business came in to crush those dreams.
1: Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of drug use, sexuality, death, and other adult content. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13.
2: 1880. Los Angeles was a modest town of 11,000 people, newly reachable by rail.
1: Eight miles to the north-northwest was a largely undeveloped ranching area full of fruit trees and wild coyotes, surrounded by stunning canyon views. But the budding film industry had other plans. An
2: enterprising couple moved in, setting up beautiful gridded streets and planting gardens that would soon rival Eden itself.
1: They shared a dream of building a Christian utopia for wealthy Midwesterners away from the bustle of city life.
2: There were to be stunning homes, plentiful churches, and absolutely no alcohol or debauchery of any kind.
1: But the budding film industry had other plans. In just five years, that small plot of rural paradise was transformed from an upscale, elite society to the hotbed of the working-class film industry.
2: And with that change came sex scandals, elaborate drug rings, predatory cults, and cold-blooded murders.
1: But if you were to look upon the land that was to be Hollywood, that idea would have been impossible to see. In fact, the founders of the small plot of land in Southern California had a much different premise about its ideal use.
2: Harvey Wilcox was in his early 50s and looking for new beginnings with his 21-year-old wife, Daida Hartel. The recently-wed pair was an excellent match, in part due to their shared Christian faith and staunch opposition to alcohol. Both were early and ardent adopters of prohibitionist ideals.
1: Harvey was a real estate man and recognized his young wife's talents, embracing her as a partner in his career as well as in his home. Beyond that, they shared a vision, a vision of a utopia.
2: And like so many others in the 19th century, The couple looked west. In
1: 1883, Southern California had a unique combination of rugged nature and opportunity. Los Angeles had a meager population of 11,000, and the Santa Fe Railway would not reach the city for another two years, meaning wealthy landowners and aspiring farmers could tap into the untapped potential of the vast, undeveloped, fertile land.
2: For the Wilcoxes, this could be the home of their perfect society, a place to build their dream.
1: When they first moved out west, the Wilcoxes purchased a home in the desirable Figueroa district of Los Angeles. They had a son about a year later, and all seemed to be bliss. But then tragedy struck and perhaps changed the course of cultural history. In
2: 1886, the Wilcox's 18-month-old son, Harry, died. It was a devastating turn for the couple, who thought they had a bright future to look forward to.
1: Grief-stricken, Harvey and Daida began to take long carriage rides in the wild canyons north of downtown Los Angeles, led by Harvey's stunning white racehorses, Duke and Royal.
2: On their way to the canyons, the couple passed through barely-developed farmland dotted with patches of fig and apricot trees.
1: The landscape was beautiful, and the Wilcoxes were infatuated. It was a paradise, but an untamed one, ripe for cultivation and development.
2: So, like so many others that would come to this land in the future, they began to dream. Harvey and Ida knew it in their hearts. This was to be the home of their utopia.
1: But their vision of an ideal society had a rigid and sinister undertone. Harvey and Daida were staunchly religious, and as such, they envisioned a community that banned both alcohol and non-white, non-Christian residents.
2: This was actually part of a late 19th century trend. Many fundamentalist Christians were breaking off from society to build communes under their own particular brand of beliefs. These could be relatively mundane, or more dramatic and cult-like in their origins. No place had the combination of natural, aesthetic beauty and open space to attract these communes as California.
1: So, on February 1, 1887, she and Harvey purchased roughly 120 acres approximately 8 miles north of downtown Los Angeles, virtually the middle of nowhere. Their goal was to turn the parcel into a retirement destination for wealthy Christian Midwesterners wanting to try their hand at hobby farming and land speculation.
2: Harvey, a wealthy upper-class elitist, planned to personally screen prospective buyers to keep out heathens, non-whites, and those not polished enough for their dream society.
1: Because the Wilcoxes owned the land, they owned a city completely separate from Los Angeles— that they could control however they saw fit.
2: But like any up-and-coming community, their land needed a name. In August, it came to Daida by a chance train ride. She was returning from seeing relatives in Ohio when a wealthy passenger spoke of her own estate in Illinois named Hollywood.
1: Daida loved holly trees and further loved that a member of society's upper crust had already given the name to her estate. To Daida, it evoked the dreamy, exclusive luxury their utopia was meant to embody.
2: Daida suggested it to Harvey, and they officially submitted the name to the county recorder in August of 1887. Harvey drew up a map of their new community, along with perfect gridded street delineations and individual land plots. Hollywood was officially born.
1: He and Daida passed the time by coming up with street names, hoping this would also attract customers. Meanwhile, they employed cheap laborers to help clear the dirt roads and plant handsome pepper trees on the edge of properties.
2: These laborers were primarily Chinese and Mexican immigrants. The Wilcoxes only wanted white families to own their property, but they had no problem employing the cheapest labor they could get in order to build their dreams.
1: But just when things were going their way, the economy took a steep downturn. Los Angeles suffered a real estate crash in the late 1880s.
2: The bubble that had brought thousands out to California with dreams of going into real estate eventually left more realtors than land buyers. The bubble burst, and buyers grew scarce.
1: This was a terrible loss for the Wilcoxes. In 1887, they were forced to sell their own downtown home and refund money to buyers who were forced to pull out at the last second.
2: To their greater horror, the need to stay afloat financially forced them to lower their strict requirements on new residents, even admitting a few people who openly drank.
1: They promised themselves it would only be temporary, but this officially marked the beginning of Hollywood's downward spiral into a town of excess. The couple
2: tried to offset their bad luck by encouraging residents to hire top-notch architects and plant beautiful Eden-like gardens around their future homes. They also courted commercial developers, hoping that upscale businesses would make Hollywood more desirable. Slowly, they began to recover.
1: But disaster hit before they could truly get back on their feet. Harvey's health took a turn for the worse during these stressful times, and on March 19, 1891, at about 60 years old, he passed away.
2: Daida, just 29, was now a widow with a house on the edge of an increasingly undesirable neighborhood and little financial means to speak of.
1: On top of that, Mounting water problems threatened Hollywood's continued development, with the city alternating between terrible floods and stark shortages. That summer, a particularly awful drought dried Daida's well completely, leaving her without safe drinking water.
2: These conditions once again forced Daida to sell to undesirables, leaving the young widow rather despondent.
1: That is, until 1894, when Daida thought her luck was turning around at last. That year, she married her second husband, Philo Judson Beveridge.
2: Philo was a good-looking, wealthy son of a former governor. His family connections provided financial stability, and Daida and Philo's partnership as Beveridge and Beveridge Real Estate finally allowed Daida to return to building her utopia.
1: It also helped that, shortly after their marriage, Philo's father, the esteemed former governor, John Beveridge of Illinois, moved to Hollywood, giving it the prestige necessary to attract wealthier, more established clients.
2: This continued in 1900, when she successfully sold property to the community's first true celebrity resident, Paul de Longpre, the so-called King of Flowers, Delongprey was a famous French painter who was a smash hit with the more conservative residents. He was cultured, foreign, and painted tasteful florals as opposed to more popular nude paintings that were the talk of the art world. Delongprey's presence alone sent property values skyrocketing. Daida had struck gold.
1: Development began to snowball, and in 1902 the Hollywood Hotel opened. It was an instant success, but also ultimately brought undue attention to the budding city. It began to be harder to control who was in and out of Hollywood with all the workers and tourists, and the prohibitionist rules of the city were being broken more and more often.
2: Much to Diada's dismay, her own husband was caught breaking the law when he tried to serve white wine at an event at the Hollywood Hotel. This began to sow a seed of discord between Daida's rigid morals and Philo's more progressive outlook.
1: This was exacerbated by the other headaches created from trying to run a city. In the wet winter months, the city was consistently flooding. Meanwhile, wealthy estate owners refused to put unsightly septic tanks and other sewage processing facilities on their land, leading to a lack of adequate equipment and constant sewage backups all over town.
2: Hollywood literally stunk. And the only way to fix these problems was utilizing the resources and labor force of Los Angeles. But that would mean being incorporated by the city and losing the autonomy that allowed Hollywood to ban liquor and control who was allowed to live there.
1: Votes began around 1905 on whether or not to join Los Angeles. Daita, who had literally created Hollywood, wasn't allowed to participate since women's suffrage would not pass for 15 years.
2: Then, in 1907, a new obstacle appeared that no one could have predicted. The movies arrived in Los Angeles.
1: Next, Hollywood takes on a life of its own.
2: Now back to the story.
1: In 1888, at the same time that Hollywood was falling victim to a real estate bubble bursting, Thomas Edison patented an invention that would change Hollywood forever.
2: Edison was a shrewd businessman who held, or jointly held, a record of 1,093 patents across his lifetime.
1: Edison didn't actually invent the motion picture camera himself, however always looking to strengthen his profits, he commissioned a lab assistant named William Kennedy Laurie Dixon to do it.
2: And Dixon delivered in 1888. The camera was revolutionary, and within 10 years, a burgeoning film industry had emerged in New Jersey.
1: The new industry was exciting, but not without its challenges.
2: Early film relied entirely on natural light, meaning companies had to use open spaces and sunshine to get their shots. They even built elaborate moving platforms to track the sunlight as it moved throughout the day.
1: Whenever there was poor weather or the sun went down, production had to stop. While this obstacle was utterly frustrating to filmmakers, the medium was still wildly lucrative, and there were always people willing to brave the elements to make a picture.
2: Edison saw the rapidly growing industry as a way to make a fortune, and as usual, he wanted to keep everything under his control.
1: He went after anyone who tried to make additional cameras or equipment, ensuring his products were the only ones on the market.
2: But his cameras were expensive. Only a few of the original film companies could afford them, which suited these companies just fine. It meant a monopoly on the market.
1: Thus, in 1908, these companies banded together to form the Motion Picture Patents Company, or Edison Trust.
2: All of this culminated in a rash of illegal filmmaking around New York, a creative industry that, from its outset, was lawless and extremely competitive.
1: As a result... Film companies and independent projects began outright sabotaging each other's productions. Fires on sets, damaged cameras, broken equipment, actors getting roughed up by hired thugs. These were extremely common occurrences in the early movie scene.
2: One of the most popular forms of this pointed subversion was for hired double agents to bring a loaded gun to set and shoot out the camera lens during filming.
1: It was a ruthless kind of film-on-film crime, producing stories wild enough to fuel writers' imaginations and capture the attention of moviegoers.
2: Gangster stories quickly became popular, and directors would cast gangsters to play fake gangsters on screen. This made the performances convincing, if unconventional. But with such a potent integration with the criminal underworld, police intervention was inevitable, and they would regularly arrest filmmakers and shut down productions.
1: This was the anarchy of the early film industry. Threats, sabotage, and violence. Gangsters and thugs. All in the name of the newest form of art.
2: It was chaos. What was worse, The Motion Picture Patents Company discouraged feature-length products, outside financing, and other natural outgrowths in the film industry, upsetting even the filmmakers who bought into the system. Those who really wanted to make their mark in movies realized they were going to have to get out of New York and New Jersey to do so.
1: In those days, the post was slow and travel was difficult. The best way to run from the law was to head as far away from it as possible. For that reason, many illegal filmmakers started migrating west to Southern California.
2: Besides being far from the law and the reign of the MPPC, Southern California received 300 to 350 days of sunshine a year. New York City, by contrast, got a maximum of about 200 severely limiting film production.
1: Coming from the loud, dirty, populated streets of New York, Southern California felt like paradise. There was almost no change between summer and winter. The landscape offered ocean beaches, deserts, rocky canyons, snowy mountaintops, and grassy plains, all within a day's drive.
2: The filmmakers soon realized they were home. Much like Daida Wilcox, they had found
1: their Eden. But just as had happened in New York and New Jersey, legal authorities soon came collecting. Remember, just because they had left the East Coast didn't mean they were free from Edison's patents. And private detectives were more than thrilled to chase the movies west.
2: Director Alan Dwan was not entirely shocked when a well-dressed private detective showed up on set in the early 1900s hoping to shut down Alan's production and collect reward money back east.
1: Alan knew thugs like this meant business, but he wasn't going to give up his life's work. He led the detective up to an arroyo, or small creek bed, which was full of used tin cans from set.
2: The detective pulled out a firearm and warned Alan menacingly, We want you to get out of town immediately. Quit making pictures. Just forget about it. To prove his point, the detective fired into the arroyo. He missed every can he shot at, but the cans still danced dramatically.
1: But Duane was prepared. Calmly, he pulled out his own firearm.
2: Alan fired at three cans from 50 feet away and hit each straight through the middle.
1: He looked the detective in the eye and asked, Do you want to try that again?
2: Thoroughly spooked, the detective ran off straight into the three mounted Morrison brothers and their Winchester rifles. These real-life cowboys were extras on the film and hired security.
1: The Morrison brothers roughed up the detective enough that he left town, and Alan didn't hear from the agency again.
2: Of course, this story was too good to pass up. Within a year, Allen's company made a film based on the experience, with embellishments, of course. Anything for entertainment.
1: This situation was typical at the time. Filmmaking was not for the faint of heart. Bodily harm was almost a given. And between the hired gangsters and unsafe stunts, movie sets were downright dangerous.
2: Anyone interested in making movies had to be ready to literally crack skulls. But despite the danger, more and more people moved to California in the early 1900s.
1: Smaller, illegal film companies set up in remote areas, giving them plenty of room to build sets and film the landscape.
2: The more legitimate companies settled in the cities where equipment and cheap labor were more readily available. Hopeful actors and extras began coming to the city for work given a quarter to a third of all filmmaking in the early 1900s was independent and therefore illegal, there was a large market interested in operating far, far away from Edison and his patents.
1: What was more, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which oversees California to this day, was not particularly interested in enforcing patent laws, adding a layer of protection to filmmakers.
2: And in the unlikely event a case was upheld in a court of law, it was only a few hundred miles to the Mexican border. So long as your equipment passed over with you, it couldn't be seized.
1: So Southern California became the Mecca for movies. In 1907, the first film studio opened in downtown Los Angeles.
2: While filmmakers were initially content to shoot their pictures on studio stages, Filmmakers soon wanted a variety of backgrounds in less-crowded areas to film, namely, Hollywood.
1: Unfortunately for Daida Wilcox, there was easy public transportation between Los Angeles and Hollywood, which allowed filmmakers and their crews to easily commute to Hollywood during the day. Hollywood was, after all, only 8 miles from downtown
2: the stunning Garden of Eden effect that Daida and the Hollywood community had so carefully cultivated now attracted the very scoundrels and vagrants they wanted to keep out.
1: It was no secret that Hollywood residents immediately hated film people, even calling their growing presence an invasion. Their productions filled the peaceful streets with clanging, yelling, and general chaos, not to mention the presence of working class and minority people who these utopians detested.
2: Several residents reported shock and dismay at opening their door to see two mounted cowboys galloping across their properties with a camera crew shouting and running after them. These incidents became increasingly common, and there wasn't much the town could legally do about it.
1: Shooting permits were unheard of at this time, and the town could only govern what businesses were built inside city lines. Because the film crews showed up during the day, but packed up and left at night, Hollywood's laws didn't apply to them as they were written.
2: While plenty of the Hollywood elite wanted to enact stricter laws and fight back against the influx of film professionals, they had more immediate problems. Their infrastructure hadn't been fixed and property values were plummeting.
1: Voting residents faced the difficult decision of keeping their independence while sinking into further economic failure or joining Los Angeles to survive. They held on as long as they could, but in the fall of 1909, finally voted to merge with the city.
2: The vote passed and Hollywood officially became Los Angeles' newest neighborhood and the vagabonds of L.A. welcomed it with open arms.
1: Next, Hollywood becomes Tinseltown. And now, back to the dark side of Hollywood. In
2: 1909, a vote passed to give up Hollywood's legal autonomy in exchange for help with failing infrastructure, financial woes, and an ever-worsening sewage problem.
1: Now that Hollywood was part of the city of Los Angeles, the alcohol ban was lifted, as was the ban on movie studios. There was nothing Daida could do about it. She was forced to watch three decades of work crumble around her.
2: Almost immediately, future film tycoon Cecil B. DeMille purchased a nearly inaccessible shack in Hollywood, used expressly for filming.
1: Within the year, he'd open Los Angeles' second film studio. DeMille would soon become deeply enamored with Hollywood. He constantly filmed there, bringing increasing numbers of film crew into the area.
2: Actors flocked from all over the country to try their hand at these new motion pictures, flooding the streets of Hollywood and storming the gates of studios every morning in hopes of finding work.
1: With this abundance of new labor and new films came a rise in alcohol consumption, drug use, child labor, and sex scandals. All smack in the middle of Hollywood.
2: And with the emergence of the movie industry in Hollywood and Los Angeles, so too came the things that always marked the silver screen. Dreams and broken dreams. Fame and idolization. Risks and rewards beyond the early 20th century's imagination.
1: The dream that became Tinseltown had captured the country's imagination, and the fundamentalist Christians scattered around Hollywood would soon be vastly outnumbered.
2: Daida lived just long enough to see her city lost to darkness. She contracted cancer and died in 1914.
1: Less than a year later, in 1915, Hollywood released the world's first feature-length film, the three-hour epic, Birth of a Nation. D.W. Griffith had filmed parts of it in his Hollywood studio.
2: The film began with a disclaimer on screen. Quote, This is a historical presentation of the Civil War and Reconstruction period and is not meant to reflect on any race or people of today.
1: The movie's content was the exact opposite of this claim. It unabashedly portrayed black people as the main reason for the problems in the South, specifically during the antebellum and Civil War periods.
2: In case the racism wasn't clear enough, the end of the movie showed the Ku Klux Klan riding in to heroically restore the South to its perceived pre-Civil War glory.
1: The movie was a resounding success which meant its racist and hateful rhetoric was seen all over the country and even abroad. This empowered many racists across the country to begin speaking more boldly about their twisted beliefs. In fact, Birth of a Nation is consistently credited with revitalizing the KKK.
2: So much so that the KKK literally used the film to train new recruits well into the 1970s, if
1: not longer. Birth of a Nation wasn't wildly out of place at the time, though. Most viewers read it as historically accurate, and the film's skewed but emotional perspective made audiences feel justified in their beliefs.
2: Plus, the film was an incredible technological feat. No one had seen a production this expensive or long before, and the sets and stunts were stunning. But the film did have critics, there were people outraged by its bigoted stances and false understanding of the past.
1: Unfortunately, these voices were too small and too young to make an organized effort against the film. For example, the NAACP had just been formed a few years earlier, in 1909, and it was in no position to take on a cultural juggernaut.
2: Historian David Lair compares it to being the Star Wars of its time.
1: Besides, with no national laws for film distribution, it was hard to go after more than a single theater or state at once, and the studio was eager to show the film in as many places as possible.
2: Feature films provided newer and bigger success opportunities for directors and performers alike, and actors were often willing to do anything to keep their careers
1: Often, this meant sustaining onset injuries. These could be broken bones, burns, breathing problems from special effects, or severe skin lacerations.
2: Despite the medical industry knowing the dangers of opiates, morphine and heroin were still the preferred painkillers of choice in the 1910s and even early 1920s.
1: As a result, injured actors would often become addicted to these hard drugs.
2: Some fell into a cycle of addiction, later becoming targets of newly formed drug rings. Others attempted to get off drugs by switching to alcohol, which wasn't necessarily any better.
1: Two famous cases of early drug scandals were Wallace Reed and Fatty Arbuckle. Both were beloved American performers. Reed had acted in Birth of a Nation and had contracts extending well into the 1920s for more work. Arbuckle was the highest-paid performer in Hollywood, surpassing even Charlie Chaplin.
2: Reed was given morphine to handle terrible injuries after a train crash. Because the morphine allowed him to keep working, the studio looked the other way as his addiction began to grow.
1: Reed shocked the nation when he overdosed on set in early 1922. He died a year later from complications. He was the first of many drug-related Hollywood deaths.
2: Arbuckle also suffered an injury in the mid-1910s. His doctors put him on heroin. Arbuckle successfully switched to alcohol, but as a result, became a well-known drunk.
1: The Arbuckle scandal surpassed the Reed scandal in seriousness when Arbuckle was accused of drunkenly raping and murdering another famous actress, Virginia Rappe in 1921. While he was ultimately acquitted, public opinion toward the movies took an enormous hit.
2: Which may have exacerbated an already growing problem.
1: As stories of scandal leaked out of Los Angeles, many of the country's derelict began to see Tinseltown as a place where anything goes. This was
2: the exploitative environment that Hollywood was founded on. Built upon an industry that was literally running from the law, the leaders of the film world were ruthless and tenacious in their methods.
1: Which gave it a dangerous mystique that only helped the film industry grow at an explosive rate. Movie studios with huge open stages popped up more and more frequently. These stages left productions to the mercy of the weather. Sometimes equipment caught fire, or crews had to rush to cover the cameras and props when a rare rain came in.
2: There were no unions or regulations yet, and hopeful crew and actors had to show up at the studio gates in the mornings to try to get work.
1: But this rigid atmosphere contrasted the glitz and glamour that was creeping its way into the city.
2: Hollywood had transformed into a premier destination for the rich and famous. In addition to becoming the location of homes to stars such as Buster Keaton, Douglas MacLean, and Mary Pickford, it became a major tourist attraction.
1: The Hollywood Hotel, once an alcohol-free local establishment, was constantly full with guests and actors. Even visiting dignitaries wanted to see Hollywood.
2: As Hollywood welcomed the Roaring Twenties, the movie industry had completely taken over Los Angeles.
1: But not everyone found Hollywood as welcoming as they'd hoped. With a growing population of movie hopefuls came a growing population of -of out-of-work actors.
2: Many who had moved west to make it in film had their dreams dashed and felt increasingly isolated in a town void of family and friends.
1: Looking for a surrogate family and a place to call home, many became susceptible to the burgeoning number of cults popping up around the area. These were so prevalent that there were an estimated 400 cults in Los Angeles in the 1920s alone. Hollywood had become synonymous with fame and power, drawing ambitious crooks from around the country who were only too happy to get a fresh start out West.
2: This was in part because L.A. was growing so rapidly. 11,000 people in 1880 became 100,000 people in 1900. That number rose to 575,000 people in 1920 and a whopping 1.2 million people in 1930.
1: This meant Los Angeles went from the 36th most populous city in the United States in 1900 to the 5th in 1930, Not all of that growth was good.
2: The rise of show business led to the systemic exploitation of women, children, and minorities. Meanwhile, countless budding actors threw away their life savings to make it in showbiz, only to end up destitute.
1: The Great Depression hit at the end of the 20s, sending even more hopefuls spiraling out of work. Former actresses often sought burlesque and sex work to pay the bills.
2: Meanwhile, newly enacted federal codes clamped down on the moral purity of on-screen stories while the scandals, murders, and drug deaths kept piling up in the tabloids.
1: It's hard to believe that in 1930, Hollywood was completely unrecognizable from either the open canyon pastures of the 1880s or the Wilcox's conservative alcohol-free utopia of 1900.
2: Hollywood's bright lights and allure of a better life would continue attracting dreamers for the next 100 years and beyond, and the Hollywood machine would keep crushing them. May Blackburn was not the last mother to try to use her daughter to gain a fortune, and Fatty Arbuckle and Wallace Reed were not the only drug, alcohol, or murder cases to come out of Hollywood.
1: There were scandals to come that hadn't even been dreamt of, from drug rings to terrifying stage mothers to cults.
2: With all that light and glamor, The shadows just kept getting darker.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, follow The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify to hear more. And be sure to check out the next episode in our collection, The Story of the Downfall of Fatty Arbuckle, which became known as... Hollywood's First Scandal Hollywood Scandals is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. This collection was written and developed by Chelsea Wood and writing assistance from Kate Gallagher. Production assistance by Aaron Larson and Ron Shapiro. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken and hosted by Carter Roy. This episode of Hollywood Scandals comes from The Dark Side Of, hosted by Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner, and written by Taylor Cleland. Sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Remember to check out the new Spotify original from ParCast, Hollywood Scandals. Every Monday, discover the real-life dramas of some of entertainment's biggest names. Listen to Hollywood Scandals free and only on Spotify.